starting there in verse 1 of Psalm chapter 3. David says, Lord, how are they increased that trouble me? Many are they that rise up against me. Many there be which say of my soul that there is no help for him in God. Selah. But thou, O Lord, art a shield for me, my glory, and the lifter upper of mine head. I cried unto the Lord with my voice, and he heard out of his holy hill. Selah. I laid me down and slept. I awaked, for the Lord sustained me. I will not be afraid of 10,000 of people that have set themselves against me around about. Arise, O Lord, save me, O my God, for thou hast smitten all mine enemies upon the cheekbone. Thou hast broken the teeth of the ungodly. Salvation belongeth unto the Lord. Thy blessing is upon the people. Selah. Let's pray. Our gracious Heavenly Father, Lord, as we open your word this morning, Lord, I pray that you pour out the Spirit upon us, that you make us aware this morning, alert us to our desperate need of you, make us aware of the confidence that we have in you and that we should have in you, Lord. May we in times as we look upon maybe not even our situations at home, our situations at work, our situations in this world, Lord, though at times it may, may seem like there are enemies all around us, may we with the utmost confidence, uh, not doubt, but with the utmost confidence say that salvation from all situations is of the Lord. Lord, we give thanks to you for all that you've done. Lord, thank you, thank you, thank you for these blessings of these babies being brought into this world, Lord. Strengthen the parents, Lord. What a, what a smile it brings to everyone's face to see new life. We give thanks to you for all that you've done. In Jesus' name, amen. It was said that a, a doctor was given a prognosis to his patient. He said, sir, I have really bad news for you, and I have really, really, really bad news for you. The patient looked at the doctor in the utmost shock. He said, well, what is the really bad news? The doctor said, you only have 24 hours to live. The patient swallowed with a big lump in his throat and said, how could it ever get any worse than this? So he asked the doctor, what is the really, really, really bad news? The doctor says, I should have called you yesterday. You know, what we have seen in any time serving Christ is that you have bad news, really bad news, and there are times when we're walking through this Christian journey where we receive really, really, really bad news. Serving the Lord is not just a walk in the park. I mean, sometimes you can face enemies. Sometimes you face enemies in the workplace. Sometimes it's enemies in the world. Sometimes it's enemies in the home. It's enemies all around about us. And as we come into Psalms chapter 3, the superscription at the beginning of the text tells us that David is facing a time of really, really, really bad news. 
Not only does David have enemies that are up against him, not only is David facing enemies, but the superscription right underneath the text of Psalms 3 says, a psalm of David when he fled from Absalom. Well, okay, this is one thing that David fled from his enemy, that he was on the flee, but notice what the superscription ends with. When David fled from Absalom, his son. It's a whole changing in the view when you realize you, we all sit back and we say we have enemies. We have people who's trying to hinder our ministry. We have people who may be trying to hinder our progress. It's another thing to realize that your own son wants to kill you. David here writes this psalm in a bad time. On the run from his son, this time, if you wanted to parallel this passage, you could take your Bible and turn to 2 Samuel 13 and read chapters 13 through 18, and you could really get the whole picture of everything that's going on in David's life when he pins this psalm. His wise counselor, Ahipophel, turns against him. Amnon, his son, rapes his sister Tamar. Absalom, Tamar's sister, kills Amnon. I mean, the whole house is really just splitting at the seams. And then on top of all of that, Absalom then turns against his own father. And the Bible lets us know when you read those chapters 13 through 18 that it was because of Absalom's charisma. It was because of Absalom's character that Absalom began to turn away the younger people away from David. See, the older generation had knew about the victories that had came through the time of David. The older generation had knew about how David was a valiant warrior, but Absalom had began to post himself up at the gate to win the attention of the people. Finally, after many years of this going on, many of the people turned away from David. And David was forced to flee his city. He was forced to flee his country. He was forced to flee his throne. And he fled. And it was after he fled that he wrote this. Think about this. The greatest king that Israel had ever experienced that brought peace to all of Israel who conquered all of the lands around him, was put on the run by his own son. When he experienced this grief, when he experienced this despair, he laments his troubles unto God. But one of the beautiful things about Psalms chapter 3 is that as the psalmist begins to lament his troubles to God, he only makes it in two verses as he's lamenting his troubles, and then he begins to realize it's not exactly as bad as it seems. Only a right perspective could bring you from there. A place where you're lamenting that your son is trying to kill you, and you take a step back and say, but God is still on the throne. One man said that, when the believer gazes at the enemy too much, the forces arrayed against him seem to grow in size, to seem to become insurmountable, innumerable, undefeatable. But when he turns to God, 
and God is seen in his true great statue, one's enemy shrinks to manageable proportions. That is exactly what happened here in Psalms 3. On the outskirts, and even in, and when you get into verse 4 and 5, and David says, though 10,000s camp around me. This was no small number. Think about it. The greatest king was forced to leave the throne. This was no small uprising against David. But as David began to lament his problems, I love what David did because in this first verse he says, Lord, how they are increased that trouble me. Notice that. David has a problem. Lord is how it all starts off. When we're facing things that trouble us, when we're facing problems that bother us, when we're facing things that we don't really know how to move forward, when we are facing enemies, not only from the outside, but from within the inside, the only place to go is to the Lord. You know, David doesn't take this situation and handle it like we like to handle problems. When problems come our way, you know, when things come our way, especially if they bring a heavy shock to us, the first thing out of our mouth is, what, what, doesn't he know I raised him, doesn't this, doesn't, this is how we would act. We act in our emotions. Notice also, when we hear things that shock us and, and cause fear in us, what do we do? We uh, react physically, but not David. He says, Lord, how are they increased that trouble me? Are they that rise up against me? Verse 2, many are they which stay of my soul. There is no help for him in God. Selah. This word increased. You have seen its root word mentioned three times in verses 1 and 2. We see it there when increased. This means many. When we see many mentioned again, many are they that rise up against me. Many there be which say of my soul, there is no help for him in God. To kind of give you this perspective of the usage of this word. Remember back in Genesis chapter 17 and verse 2 where God promised Abraham that he would multiply him exceedingly. When we look at the children of Israel, and even today, the children of Israel, it's all traced back to Abraham. Has God not multiplied Abraham's seed exceedingly? Did not God multiply Abraham's wealth exceedingly? It was used again. Remember when Abraham chased down the kings who had attacked Sodom and Gomorrah and took him locked captive. And Abraham with his men went after them and freed those people. And the kings of Sodom and Gomorrah tried to give Abraham their wealth, and he said, no, it not be so. God's going to increase my wealth. In the same way that God increased Abraham's wealth, in the same way that God increased Abraham's seed, this same word is the way that David viewed the enemy as they were increasing against him minute by minute. They had increased against him to this innumerable force. When he speaks about the numbers that's all around him, David says, though tens of thousands be around me. 
what is this force that is increased against him? Notice when David rests his eyes upon the Lord, though it does not take the long for the psalmist to say, it's really not that bad. And before we come down hard on David in verses 1 and 2, it's easy for us to say that when we first look at David, when he, we read these verses, that, man, he's just he's complaining. I mean, these people are increased against him. They're saying bad things about him. And you know what? And he's, he's just coming to the Lord complaining about all of these things. You know, before we come down too hard to David, we should applaud him. Because David's first stop for his problem was to the Lord. We oftentimes, as we're navigating through the Christian life and we experience problems and hurdles, we are good at parallel debating and arguing. I mean, we look out amongst our friends and complain about our sorrows. And by the time we end up to God in prayer, we're too exhausted to talk about it because we flesh it out with the world. David fleshes out his problems, but he fleshes them out to the Lord. Lord, how are they increased against me? Lord. How many are these people who say, there is no help for my soul in you? It's a positive step in our life that before we get pulled into the dynamics of the problems before us, that, you know, we say, kill our spiritual life, that we hit our knees and take them to the Lord of prayer. We love singing about it. We love telling people about it. We... Uh, it's a common thing when we hear about people's problems. We say, take it to the Lord in prayer. We even love the song that Joseph Scriven wrote about what a friend we have in Jesus. So we praise about how amazing of a friend Jesus is. And he's the last friend to hear about our problems. We love the song, have we trials and temptations? Is there troubles anywhere? We should never be discouraged. Take it to the Lord in prayer. You know what the next verse says, right? Can we find a friend so faithful? Who will all our sorrows share? Jesus knows our every weakness. Take it to the Lord in prayer. It is not the second stop. It is not the third stop. It is the first stop in David's troubled path. And it is his first stop. You say, how in the world can David's son be ready to kill him? And it only bothers him for two verses out of eight because of where he stopped first. If we go to the world first, it will be six verses of lamenting and two verses of realizing the Lord had delivered us when we went to him in prayer. The psalmist says, how are they increased that trouble me? Many are they that rise up against me, many are the many there be which say of my soul, there is no help for him in God's Selah. First, notice what the verse one says. The psalmist gives us two perspectives of these people who are afflicting him. The affliction comes two ways. First verse, he tells us what they are doing to cause him affliction. Sometimes people's actions afflict us. Sometimes people's actions grieve us. And then on top of Absalom's actions grieving him, on top of Absalom's actions causing him to run from his city, to run from his throne, to run from his kingdom, then in the same breath, he tells us in verse 2 what they are saying as they are running from him. Not only is this situation afflicting enough that it's happening, 
but the enemy is rubbing it in. The enemy is rubbing it in deep. Notice what they're saying. Many there be which say of my soul, there is no help for him in God. Well, that's a, a distressing thought. Many there be which say of my soul. Notice what he's saying here. Many there be which say of my soul. There is no help for who? For him in God, Selah. Shortly after becoming pastor here, it was one of the roughest stints in my own life. Excited about what the future was having coming down the road for me, but also one of the most traumatizing times in my life. Shortly after becoming pastor, what do we get? We get COVID. What's next? My grandpa dies. Then my dad dies. Then my dad's wife dies. Then both of my wife's grandparents die. Then our friend that grows up here, he kills himself. You start to begin to break down. And through all of this, friends encouraged me. Through all of this, friends helped me. But the greatest encouragement that I had was from the Lord. I can remember sitting in the woods during this time thinking and just pondering my thoughts. I was supposed there to be there hunting, but I had already come to the conclusion that if something walked in front of me today, it was going to live because I had had enough of death. I was grieved. I could not imagine during this time in my life to be in the woods all by myself and not be able to turn unto the Lord with the burdens that weighed heavy upon my heart. I could not imagine if somebody would came to me and said, listen, not only are they dead, but you are without hope. You are without help. You are without encouragement. Friends can only do so much. David is right there when they say, many there be which say of my soul. There is no help for him in God. He is in this affliction, this grievous moment where people are slandering him, and yet they continue to say, not only do you have no hope, you have no help. No one is going to save you, David. No one is going to help you in this problem. Spurgeon said, it is the most bitter of all afflictions when a Christian is, is, led to, is led to fear that there is no help for him in God. It is the bitter of them, most bitter of them all to think God is not here to help us. Nothing worse can be said of that, that God would not be coming to our aid. See, the right perspective is that we have enemies who are increasing on every side, but it doesn't matter because we have God. Where our friends and family have turned against us, it doesn't matter because we have God. It doesn't matter if family betrays you. Why? Because we have God. Don't ever let the Christ-rejecting voice of the enemy Come to us at any moment in trial and say to us, there is no help in God. That is where the enemy tries to isolate us. How are we going to overcome problems in our Christian life? How are we going to come out victorious, victorious on the other side of trials and troubles? When we get to the place where we do not listen to the advice of the enemy, when they tell us God is not here to give you aid. 
Jesus in his darkest hour as he hung upon the cross as this great transfer of his righteousness came upon the, the repentant uh, life of the believer. And our sin went upon him in that moment when God looked down upon Jesus and Jesus took on our sin as he took upon our sin. God is not in acquaintance with sin. He does not like to look down upon sin. And in that moment, God turned away from Jesus and Jesus cried, My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? It was a lonely moment in Christ's life to be separated from the Father. But the reason that Christ was separated from the Father is so that the child of God would never be separated again. There is not a situation in our lives where we will find ourselves separated from God. Notice what this text says here again in this verse 2. Many there be which say of my soul, there is no help for him in God, Selah. Notice what he said and notice what he did not say. Nowhere in this text did he say, or did the enemy say God didn't have the power to deliver him? That's not what he said. No. Nope. Nowhere in that text does he say that God didn't have the knowledge or the tactical ability to deliver David. Nowhere in the text does he say that the enemy has surprised the Lord when he dethroned David. That's not what he says at all. Notice what he says. Many that be would say of my soul that there is no help for him in God. It's not that God could not help David. It was the belief of the people of Israel that God would not help David. It was their belief that the God who had made them victorious throughout all of the ages wasn't going to continue to look upon David. There are many say this of my soul. They denied that God would deliver them. Well, what would even make them say such a thing? What would even make them look upon David's life and say, why would they say specifically of your soul that God would not deliver you? Well, I can tell you why. It's because they knew David's business. David's sin was ever before them. Remember when we've actually preached on this before and studied this before. Remember when um, David took flight fleeing his son Absalom, one of the first people that he was encountering as he crossed over the river was that of Shimei who mocked David and threw stones at him and called him a bloody man. David's sins were of no secret. Everybody knew that God had brought judgment upon David for his sin. You know, not all secret sins like Achan. We look at Achan's secret sins in the sacred camp, but yet it came to light. Be sure your sins will find you out. You will not be able to live in sin forever. But though we keep some sins suppressed from others, they are never hid from God. God's judgment came down upon David from the throne of glory when others didn't even know. So what is the important context to this? That there are many that say of my soul that there is no help for him in God. 
It is that David had committed this sin with Bathsheba. Remember this adultery with Bathsheba. And on top of committing this sin with Bathsheba, David puts Uriah to death. When God used Nathan to confront David of his sin, David began to weep and moan, and God told David, your sins are put behind you. Glorious. Why? Because we serve a God who forgives. But notice what God did say in regards to this. David's sin was forgiven. But just because God forgives sins does not mean that all consequences of sin are removed. We understand that, right? We like the thought process of we commit sin, God forgives sin, and there's no existing ramifications that because God forgives us, we have been completely rerouted away from the trouble in which we was headed down. That's just not so. God tells David in 2 Samuel chapter 12 and 11, Thus saith the Lord, Behold, I will raise up evil against thee out of thine own house. This sounds familiar, doesn't it? And I will take thy wives before thine eyes and give them unto thy neighbor, and he shall lie with thy wives in the sight of his, this son. That's very interesting, because that is all the unfolding of Absalom. But those who knew David's business, this is a serious take-home note for us. Those who knew David's business have concluded that God had turned his back on David because that was the judgment from God. And this was the judgment that was promised him for his sin. Make a note in your Bible today. We are not as spiritual as we like to think of ourselves. Who are we to think we can discern truth? Who are we to think that we can discern judgment? We do this all the time. We look upon people who's facing physical afflictions, and what do we say? Well, that's the result of them living in sin. You know, if they get things right with God, maybe they wouldn't be in that situation. Who are we? Who are we to discern such a thing? Who are we to even say such a thing? If we were spiritual judges today, we would be before the courts ourselves every day for falsely making people victims and falsely convicting people because we know nothing about being spiritual judges. If we were spiritual doctors, we would be sued daily for spiritual malpractice because we know nothing about the things of God. We know nothing about how God handles his business. Yes, that was God's judgment. And these people believed that they were so wise that they were taking it upon themselves to send David on the run and said, you know what? This is God's judgment upon David. Let's all get involved. Think of the foolishness here. What does the Bible teach us? For the wages of sin is death. Because the wages of sin is death, this is what God said, the wages of sin is death. Does that mean we take upon ourselves to enact death upon others because God said it is the wages of the sin? No. So how can we say such a thing? David's on the run. Many had said for him, there is no help for him in God. They believed it. That this was God's punishment against his own. Yes, David committed sin. Yes, David committed murder. Yes, God gave a judgment against his house. But it does not mean that we have the right to diagnose someone's physical situation, spiritual situation, or connect the spiritual to the physical because God is not like us. 
And if you want validation of that, when you get to the end of the text, God hears his son David and delivers him. When others said, oh, this is his judgment. This is exactly what he deserves. The reason we say to ourselves, the reason they are sick is because they haven't been in the house of God. The reason we connect the physical to the spiritual and the way the physical is connected to the spiritual is God's place alone. God will forgive our sins. Hallelujah. Not just one time, but every time. I can say that with the utmost confidence because he does. He is a God who forgives sin. This is the attribute of which he describes himself, that he is the God of all forgiveness. God does forgive. But when God forgives in our lives, it doesn't mean that there's not lingering consequences for our decisions to live in sin. Without a doubt in David's life, David had this going on in his own personal life. Consequences of sin. Consequences. 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 But how that all unfolds is through the sovereign hand of God. There was a little boy who was rebellious with his parents. And his parents had talk to him day after day trying to tell their son, son, you are so rebellious. You are so, you are living a life that is so ungodly. So the boy could only see one problem at a time. Whenever the parents would confront him, they would say, dad, mom, I only did this. This is all I did. So the father trying to teach the son about his problem with his rebellious lifestyle, takes the son to the garage, and every time the son does something rebellious against the parents, he takes a nail and nails it to the back of the door. Well, after weeks had gone by, this huge pile of nails had piled up on the backside of the door. The boy, realizing how grievous he was to his parents, went to his parents and said, Please forgive me for all that I've done. I want to repent. I'm sorry for doing all of these things. The father wanting his son to know that he was completely forgiven decided to go out to the garage and pull all of the nails out of the door. The next day rolls around and while the husband and wife are sitting at the kitchen table, the son runs into the kitchen and says, Mom, dad, and he's crying, and he's crying, and he's weeping. And the mom and dad calm him down. And as they're trying to calm him down, the boy said, Mom, dad. And they said, what? He said, you've taken all the nails out. He said, yeah, we've taken all the nails out. We wanted you to know that all you were forgiven. Only to have his son continue to weeping and say, Father, the nails are gone, but the holes still remain. This is how it is with sin. God may remove guilt. Consequences may still follow. God may heal the wounds of sin, but the scar may still exist. 
Yet, this is God's working and his alone. He is the one who's sovereign enough to do this work. He is the one sovereign enough to heal it. God can put lives together that could have never been put together. God is the one who solely, sovereignly works in the life of the believer. David was in trouble, but they concluded that he was in trouble and that this trouble that he was in was absolutely God's will. Yet in verse 1 and verse 2, David cried unto the Lord, but as David cried unto the Lord, as this crying went forth out of his lips about this system, this situation that's broke his heart, as he cried unto the Lord, because his own family turned against him. As he cried unto the Lord, you know what happened? We're going to see it tonight. The night turned to day. The valley turned into a mountain. The clouds rolled back and the sun came forth. And lo and behold, with a smile on his face, God was still on the throne. I love, which we'll talk about it tonight in closing here. I love that when we get down a few more verses, David said, I laid me down to sleep, though tens of thousands be around me. I laid me down to sleep. We lay ourselves down and we roll back and forth. We lay ourselves down and we stress out. We lay ourselves down and we chomp on our nails. How's this going to go? How's that going to happen? How's this going to David said, tens of thousands are around me. And I laid me down and I closed my eyes and I got some sleep. Because I come to the place in my life where God is in control. How do I handle life's problems? Even when it's family against me. I put my faith in the most sovereign God. And when I put my faith, how do I know when I'm there? When you can lay yourself down to sleep when tens of thousands are around you, who, by the way, aren't seeking to dethrone you. They're seeking to kill you. Let's pray. Our gracious Heavenly Father, Lord, we give thanks to you for your word, Lord, that strengthens us, that moves us, Lord. I pray that you'll continue to feed us from this text, Lord. Feed us even this evening, Lord, as we come back and flesh out the truths of your words, Lord, to strengthen us, to encourage us, to let us know what to do with life's trouble. We give thanks to you, God, for all that you've done for us. In Jesus' name, amen.